you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with a super great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to go back on all the wonderful podcasts that we uh, profiled last year. There's over 700 podcasts you can go back and see. Uh, all the great, wonderful books and authors and people that we had on the show. You can see a lot of the books we review and read on goodreads.com. You can see the video version of this interview at youtube.com. Fortunate Chris Voss. Right now, there is an unlimited time that you can subscribe there for free. You just hit that little button. That's going to be a very special, warm feeling in your heart, like you belong to something for a change and that you're loved. Uh, also, go see all of our groups on Facebook.com, uh, Facebook.com, Fortunate The Chris Voss Show, and of course, on LinkedIn as well. And this episode is brought to you by IFI Audio and their new Neo. I-D-S-D. The NEO is the new wave of digital sound listening for your desktop, music, gaming, and bleeding-edge Bluetooth, even MQA audio file decoding. Uh, we're using it in the studio right now. I've loved my experience with it so far. It just makes everything sound so much more richer and better and takes things to the next level. IFI Audio is an award-winning audio tech company with one aim in mind, to improve your music enjoyment of quality sound, eradicate noise, distortion and hiss from your listening experience check out their new incredible lineup of dax and audio enhancement devices at ifi-audio.com today we have an amazing author this gentleman is in radio and he's written an incredible incredible book that we have before us and he's the author of many uh the hidden history of american oligarchy reclaiming our democracy from the ruling class, he's a New York Times bestseller, Tom Hartman. I'll go ahead and hold up the book, the advanced press copy that we have here. Uh, Tom Hartman is a progressive, national, and internationally syndicated talk show host. Talkers Magazine named him America's most important progressive host and has named his show one of the top 10 radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award. Hartman is also a New York Times bestseller author of 26 books. Count them, people, 26 books translated into multiple language. Welcome to the show, Tom. How are you, my friend? Hey, Chris. It's great to be back with you. It's awesome to have you on the show. I've been watching your YouTube channel with all your uh, radio shows, and uh, I'm a fan, and I love it. Thank you. There you go. Uh, can you give uh, the audience your plugs so they can find you on the interwebs and know where to order up your a great book here? Uh, TomHartman.com, however you spell it, will get you there. And the book is available wherever you can buy a book. You know, it's it's nationally distributed through whatever, you know. The- there you go. Uh, pick it up at your local bookseller, support them, or pick it up at the big Amazon. It will be available on February 2nd, so you can pre-order that book now and be one of the first people to read it and get it out of the gate. So, Tom, what motivated you want to write this book? This book is the, 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 the pair, the, the other half of the book that preceded it, which was The Hidden History of, of uh, Monopoly. 
um, basically, you know, how biz- big business has screwed the, the American dream. And monopoly is when you concentrate uh, economic power, marketplace power, uh, to such an extent that basically the competition ceases to exist. And that's where we're at in the United States. We're a, we're a highly monopolized uh, economy. Um, oligarchy is when you consolidate political power to the point that it's very difficult to compete with or that basically you have you know, one ruling class, as it were. Um, you know, oligarchy is sometimes referred to as rule by the rich and monopoly as you know, domination of the marketplace by a handful of huge actors. So uh, this is applying to politics, the same analysis that I applied to the economy in the last book. And, uh, you know, it's particularly timely because our modern tilt toward oligarchy, which started in a big way in the, in the mid seventies and really kind of exploded into the, onto the American scene in 1981 with the, uh, with the Reagan administration has been just a straight line from Reagan to Trump and, uh, doesn't show any signs of, of stopping in, in the near future. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the right-wing billionaires are still very active and still uh, very much in control of a lot of the political, uh, particularly in the states now, even though they've lost federal power, they've, they still have, you know, it's just by a whisker. And so this hasn't gone away. Uh, so it, is that a good overview of the book or would you, what would you give us an, an overview of the book? Well, in general, in the book, um, first of all, I, I cover the history of oligarchy in the United States. We, we fought a war against oligarchy, against uh, the, the British East India Company. Um, the Boston Tea Party was the kickoff point for that war, where uh, the East India Company basically controlled almost all the commerce, certainly all the international commerce in the colonies. And there were a whole bunch of things that it was just illegal for people to do. Um, you know, it was illegal to, to manufacture fine clothing, for example, in the United States. It had to be made in England. Um, and, you know, uh, complex machinery had to be made in England. Uh, certain types of furniture had to be made in England. And all the tea in the United States had to be brought in from England. And this, of course, was the way that the British government was protecting their economy. And this, by the way, was not just something that was inflicted on the United States in 1773 when the Boston Tea Party happened. Um, this is why Mahatma Gandhi's logo was a spinning wheel. He'd sit and spin at his wheel when he'd do interviews and things, because uh, at that time, India was a British colony, and it was still illegal to make clothing in India. It had to be made in the United Kingdom. You could pick cotton in India, but you had to ship it to England to be turned into clothing and then ship that back down to India. So this is a, you know, this had been a, 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 a policy, an oligarchic policy and a, and a monopolistic policy. Um, that had kept England rich for hundreds of years. So I start at that point where when the British Parliament gave a massive tax cut to the East India Company so that they could come into the American tea market and blow out of out of the water their competition, which was mostly smuggled tea. Uh, and that so pissed off the colonists that they said enough of this and they did the tea party. We go from that. Uh, America was birthed in a fight against oligarchy to uh, in the 1830s, or really in uh, the, the cotton gin, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin in like 1797, as I recall, but it really didn't hit the marketplace until around 1810, and it really didn't get widespread in the South until around 1820. And um, one, the, 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 the big bottleneck in cotton production was cleaning the cotton. 
uh, cotton, uh, little bowls they're called, uh, kind of a wad of cotton that's, you know, replaces the flour. Um, it has all these seeds inside it that are just almost impossible to get the seeds away from the cotton. And so cleaning cotton was just a huge, huge uh, problem. The cotton gin uh, was a big barrel with kind of a screen and little hooks that went in and the hooks would pull the cotton through and the, and the seeds would have to stay in the, in the, in the, in the, in, inside the screen. And uh, one cotton gin could do the work of 50 enslaved people. So what happened was the large wealthy plantations bought cotton gins. They were able to use those to produce literally 50 times more cotton than their smaller competitors. They wiped out their small competitors, put them out of business, bought their land, turned them into sharecroppers and, and, um, and, you know, became basically an oligarchy. The entire South was controlled by a few thousand families and, and these massive plantations and the entire political class of the South now by 1830s with the rise of John C. Calhoun was pure oligarchy. I mean, right out of a textbook oligarchy. And, and 20 years later, 30 years later, they said to the United States of America, uh, we don't like this idea of democracy. We don't like this idea of representative government. We want to be the oligarchs who run the entire continent. And they declared war on us. So that was the second big experiment with oligarchy in the United States. Um, of course, they crashed and burned and the South got occupied by the Union Army. The third was in the 1930s. Each one of these, weirdly enough, are about 80 years apart. Um, the third was in the 18, 1930s uh, when Franklin Roosevelt became president. And, uh, you know, another oligarchy had emerged as a result of the Industrial Revolution starting around 1890, 1880, 1890. And you had these billionaires like John Rockefeller and the DuPonts and the Astors and the, and the Morgans and whatnot. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt declared war on them. They, they crashed the economy in 1929. They created the Great Depression. Um, and and uh, he said, I, they, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. And he fought a 10-year war against the oligarchs in the United States before he took on the oligarchs in Germany and uh, beat them back. And then in the 70s, they started rising again as a result of a couple of Supreme Court decisions, the Buckley and uh, Bellotti decisions in 76 and 78, that for the first time in the history of the United States said that if a billionaire wants to own a politician so completely that they're that politician's principal source of income and that politician does pretty much whatever that billionaire oligarch wants, that used to be called corruption or bribery. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court in 1976 officially said, no, no, it's not. It's First Amendment free speech because money is speech, didn't you know? And then two years later in the First National Bank versus Bellotti case, Supreme Court case, um, which was written by Lewis Powell, who laid this whole scenario out in 71 with his memo a year before Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court. Um, that uh, Bellotti case said that logic that we just applied to billionaires, we're going to apply that to corporations as well. They're people. They can also own <clears throat> politicians. And then in 2010, the Supreme Court doubled down on that and said not only can they own politicians, they can own hundreds of politicians. They can own entire political parties, both billionaires and corporations. And then there was one small restriction that basically limited them to around 130 politicians that an individual billionaire could own. Mm -hmm. And in the McCutcheon decision in 2013, they blew out that limit. Wow. So, uh, you know, basically ever since 1981, with that, with, with those rulings in 76 and 78, what happened was 
the Republican Party was like, oh, we can take money from billionaires. We can take money from corporations. Cool. Our hands are out. And they and just a flood of money poured into the GOP that brought Ronald Reagan to power. The Democratic Party at that point in time was so well funded by the unions. The unions were awash in cash, so much so that, you know, some unscrupulous union leaders like Jimmy Hoffa were stealing it. So uh, but the Democratic Party in, in 80 was saying, "Hey, we're good. You know, we got money from the unions, which is why the first thing that Reagan did was destroy the unions. When he came into power in 1981, about a third of America had good union jobs. Mm-hmm. By the time the Bush uh, Reagan Bush uh, 12 years was done, that was down to around 12 percent. It's six percent right now of the uh, of private workforce in the United States are unionized. And by gutting the unions. What Reagan did was gutted the financial base for the Democratic Party, which in 1992 caused uh, Bill Clinton and and a guy named uh, Al Fromm to start this thing called the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, specifically to take money from billionaires and corporations. Um, Their their caveat was, we'll leave the dirty corporations, you know, the oil companies and the the weapons industry. We'll leave that to the Republican Party. We're going to take money from the clean industries, you know, insurance and banking. And and so Clinton got into bed with these people. And, you know, we uh, that that did enormous damage to the Democratic Party. But now uh, with the uh, Obama election and with Bernie's two primaries, uh, the Democratic Party has figured out that they don't need corporations and billionaires. They can crowdsource campaigns. And so now about half of the Democratic Party is once again solidly progressive. The Progressive Caucus is about 100 members out of the 224, I think, in the House. And uh, so I think we're seeing a revival of the Democratic Party, which is a good thing because that's the anti-oligarch party. So, um, you know, I, I realize you asked me what time it was and I told you how to build a watch, but that's the overview of the book. Oh, and then and then the last part of the book is what happens when oligarchy, when the people stand up against oligarchy, typically the oligarchs fight back with a police state and that's mm-hmm. called tyranny. And so what happens when the when the nation turns into a police state, as we to some extent have? And how do you fight a police state? How do you fight oligarchy that has become cancerous as it become tyranny. And that's the last part of the book is how to put the country back together. Yeah. I was watching through the book and then watching your videos talking about this. You're talking about William Barr and, and all the different things we see. In fact, I believe the one video I saw was like a year ago and I was watching and I'm like, Holy crap. Like he's predicted everything that was going to go down yeah. in the next well, year. It wasn't hard to predict. It's an old yeah. playbook. I mean, you know, yeah. it was Hitler's playbook. It was Mussolini's playbook. It was Franco's playbook. Um, you know, it, it was uh, uh, down in Chile. It was uh, what's his name's uh, Pinochet's playbook. Um, you know, it, it's it's what is happening in uh, the Philippines right now with Duterte. It's what Bolsonaro is doing in Brazil. Um, it's an old playbook. It's it's fairly predictable. It's you know, it's happened in Russia. It's happened in a lot of the stand countries. It, it's being it's going on right now in Turkey. So uh, what Trump was doing and what the Republicans were and are continuing to do is not unique. It's just the American version of it. It just speaks English and uses an accent like you and I have. Definitely. Uh, the fascist playbook. And what's funny is Trump is friends with all, a lot of these guys, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He the, um, yeah. And I, I really think he's been preparing us this whole way. I mean, the violence, uh, everything that, that comes from, you know, that slow degradation of, 
of truth, lies, uh, uh, violence, you know, everything he tried to do was all from the fascist playbook, uh, getting, getting politicians kowtowed him. I think what's extraordinary to now is to watch is to how much power he still has, even though he's out of power. And I'm concerned that he could become another Silvio Broscoloni who, who, you know, gets removed from power and then comes back. Yeah. But, you know, I was reading today that Mike Pence has actually been having to keep his, uh, locations, uh, confidential. He's sleeping on people's couches. Yeah, for fear <laughs> of Aaron. you know they being literally killed. don't own a house because he's yeah. afraid that the that the uh, that these armed militia guys are going to come and kill him. And I think he's going to have to spend the rest of his life kind of looking over his shoulder. Yeah, well, I think so. I think you're right. And but it's he still sad. supports them. It's very unfortunate. I mean, you you have uh, you have these politicians that were cowering under a desk screaming for Donald Trump to send the troops to save him, and now they're fully backing him. And if, you know, I'm really concerned what's going to happen in the next two to four years because I don't want to see another Sylvia Boscoloni. You talk in the first uh, first chapters of the book about Trump and Trump's playbook. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think I just did. I, the, yeah. it's, the, you know, the process is not a mystery. Um, and, and, it, and it comes out of basically a, a philosophical difference. And I, I lay this out in the book as well. Um, the, our modern idea of democracy um, is not what the Greeks had or what the Roman Republic was. Um, our modern idea of democracy is kind of a hybrid of a whole bunch of things, including the Iroquois Confederacy that the founders and framers put together in the 1770s. But it has its roots in the 1630s or the 1650s. I, I believe it was 1651 that uh, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes published a book called Leviathan. And this was the first major published book. I mean, keep in mind, it's just a hundred years after Gutenberg. So you know, the world was changing very rapidly and books were getting out there, but this was the first major published book by a British subject that was arguing that people didn't need Kings. Um, Hobbes made two basic arguments in Leviathan. The first was that people are capable of self-governance. And the second was that people are fundamentally evil and so even when doing so, and, and that the natural state of man, the famous quote, you know, life would be nat, nasty, short and brutish or nasty, brutish and short. Um, you know, if man were to revert back to his original state, uh, you know, lose civilization because that's our core. And, and therefore, you need the Leviathan, the giant monster. Um, uh, he referred to it as the iron fist of church or state to control this evil nature of, of mankind. So. That became the cornerstone of today's modern conservative philosophy, that people are evil. And so you need a strong, you know, a government, a strong, you know, strong law and order in order to keep them down. Um, Fifty years later, about actually about 30 years later, John Locke in, in, in the uh, 17 in the I'm sorry, this was 1651. We're now at 1673 or 74. I think John Locke was writing his second treatise on government. And, and Locke came out and said, Hobbes is wrong. He's right that we can govern ourselves, but he's wrong that we're evil. The fundamental nature of humans is actually good. And therefore, we can actually trust the majority. So we can have self-governance, but it doesn't have to be, we don't have to figure out some weird way to bring it about. See, with Hobbes's theory that people were evil, we could govern ourselves, but, we, but it was really tricky. That led to uh, John Calvin, who was a Dutch evangelist, coming out and saying, okay, well, here's the problem. 
if we're going to govern ourselves without a king, um, and we're all evil because we're born out of women's wombs, and the Bible tells us that we're all infected with original sin because we all came from women, then, uh, and, and then how do we figure out who God wants to lead us? And Calvin, actually, it wasn't so much Calvin himself in his writings, it was his followers, but it's the basis of modern-day Calvinism, the religion that Betsy Voss is a member of. Mm -hmm. Um, The theory was that, well, you look around for God's blessing, and wherever you see people who are obviously blessed by God, those must be the people that God wants to run the show, and which is the rich people. And so thus, oligarchy, ruled by the rich, is is at the core of Calvinism or neo-Calvinism. And... So anyhow, Locke came along and said, no, you know, you don't need to do that. You don't need to follow John Calvin. Um, you can simply have a democracy. You can govern yourselves. And then uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, you know, a French philosopher, jumped in on, and, and natural historian jumped in on this because that was around the time. Again, this was in the late 1600s. That was around the time when um, the European countries were starting to seriously explore both uh, Northern Africa and, 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 the, and the West Coast of Africa and uh, the East Coast of the American continent and the Northern you know, parts of South and Central America. And what they were finding, and Rousseau was outspoken about this in the late 1600s, what they were finding were people who lived in peace, people who got along with each other, nations that had existed, as Ben Franklin said when he introduced the, the, these uh, 34 members of the Iroquois Confederacy on the first day, the opening day of the Constitutional Convention in, in 1787, the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, he said, you know, it would be a strange thing if five nations of ignorant savages have been able to forge a bond that has endured in peace for millennia and 13 colonies of educated Englishmen can't do the same. Um, you know, so, uh, and ignorant savages was, he meant that actually as a compliment. Um, so, you know, we, we, and, and so Locke and Rousseau are, at the foundation of the modern progressive or liberal, or uh, you might call democratic, not with a big D, but with a small D. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower was a fan of this um, uh, idea of governing. That is that what the majority of the people want is probably the right thing. So we go with that and uh, respecting people's rights. So obviously there are limits and, uh, and the modern day conservative philosophy is largely inherited from Hobbes. Although the modern conservative movement, and I'm pretty sure I get into that in the oligarchy book, it might be, some of it might be in the uh, Monopoly book as well, but the modern day, no, it's in the oligarchy book now that I think of it. Um, The modern day conservative movement was kicked off in 1951 by a fellow by the name of Russell Kirk. He wrote a book called The Conservative Mind. And in Kirk's book, he starts out uh, by talking about Hobbes and and talking about how, you know, people are evil and, and, you know, quack, quack, quack. And then in his book, he basically says, now keep in mind, this is 1951. He says, you know, the middle class is growing and, you know, which at the moment seems like a good thing. And America was becoming prosperous and, you know, all that kind of thing. He said, but if the middle class gets wealthy enough that they're no longer frightened, if, if working people are no longer afraid of losing their jobs, if young people are no longer afraid of getting kicked out of college or no longer respectful of their elders, if women don't, don't submit, refuse to submit to their husbands, and if minorities start challenging the power of white people, if those things happen, and they will, Kirk said in 1951, and they will if America becomes too prosperous, then all hell's going to break loose. 
and you're going to have anarchy and you're going to have the breakdown of American society and it'll be the end of the American experiment. Now, Kirk was viewed as kind of a crackpot in, his, in, in the early 50s. Barry Goldwater was totally on board. Um, uh, William F. Buckley thought he was brilliant. And, you know, so, but in those, th- those are the only circles where he was taken seriously until the 1960s. In 1961, the birth control pill was legalized and put on the market. And within three years, it was widespread across the United States. Women could control their, their reproductive systems now. And they started saying, hey, wait a minute, we should have equality with men in the workplace. Um, you know, we, you, don't, you don't have to worry about, I'm not going to get pregnant, right? And so you had that and the sexual revolution that accompanied it. So women were starting to speak out. You had a civil rights movement that was being led at that time by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King that was shaking the foundations of American business and white power. You had students who were saying in the, in the mid to late 60s um, that uh, they had no interest in going off to a war in Vietnam that Lyndon Johnson had lied us into. Hell no, we won't go. And, and they were you know, setting campuses on fire. And uh, you had African-Americans who were protesting in the streets with the civil rights movement. And, and by the early 70s, you had cities in, on fire. And so the, the early followers of Russell Kirk and, you know, by, by extension, Thomas Hobbes, uh, were looking around going, holy crap. It's true. Kirk was right back in 1951. He wasn't crazy after all. And American society is falling apart. And we've got to strip the middle class down to down back down to where they were in 1951. We've got to stop this prosperity. And that was the rationale that that founded and animated Reaganism's uh, all out war on labor unions that and let's gut the, you know, gut the funding for the Democratic Party. Uh, the, the, you know, Rush Limbaugh and his feminazi thing, you know, the whole growth of, of anti-woman misogyny and the pushback against the women's movement, the, the, uh, uh, all of the hysteria around the various black movements uh, throughout, you know, the, the last 60 years, um, from Kings to Malcolm X to Black Lives Matter and, and, and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, there have always been proxies for that, you know, before they were going after Colin Kaepernick, they were going after Muhammad Ali and, and, and for the war on drugs, cracking down on young people on the campuses and raising the cost of a college education. I went to college in 1967 and 68, and I paid my, at, at both Lansing Community College and Michigan State University, I didn't graduate from either one, but you know, a short period of time, but I was able to pay my tuition by working in a gas station and Bob's big boy as a dishwasher. I mean, you could do that back then. And so what Reaganism has done is has transferred somewhere between 10 and $50 trillion of wealth out of the pockets of the middle class. Working people no longer take two weeks of vacation a year, buy a new car every two years, buy their own, you know, start buying their own home in their late twenties, which was the norm in the 1980s. Um, And now it's in the early forties. Um, or late 30s, um, you know, all that stuff that used to be called the American dream and the American middle class, it's gone. And you've got an entire, you've got two generations now of young people who are hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, student debt. I think the average is around $40,000 per person. You got one and a half trillion dollars in student debt, just by coincidence, the exact same amount as the tax cut for billionaires that, that, that Trump pushed through in 2017. You've got, uh, so you've got young people who are paralyzed, 
Uh, you've got a, a women's movement that has been uh, vilified and co-opted, although it's still that's one of the things that has survived. You've got a civil rights movement that's constantly under attack. And, and you've got a middle class that's been gutted. That is exactly what the Republicans wanted, the conservatives wanted. And they wanted it for arguably the best of reasons, because they thought that it would restore social stability to the country and make America a nice place to live again. They were wrong. And they brought the very worst people along with them, the racists and the misogynists and the, and, and the, the greedy corporations who wanted to strip unions to make more profits. But that's the story. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you mentioned some really interesting things. There's with the Calvinism and the Betsy DeVos, the Council of National Policy and the umbrella and, and all the other evil things uh, that are underneath there and what and how they try and take us down that road of being becoming a theocracy and all the details of that. I love it. Um, you know, I, I just read today, I think that the Mercers were also helping fund the coup. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen some of the diagrams of what's going on there. And so a lot of the stuff in your book really speaks to that. And did you see that on December 6th uh, of, of almost the come to fruition of those those fascist uh, moments of seizing of power? You're talking about January 6th. Uh, January 6th. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this was uh, well, you know, uh, there's a, a, a joke going around now. What do you call a failed coup, Chris? What? A rehearsal. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's where we're at. And and you've got 45 Republican senators who yesterday said, fine with us. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, I, I forget the comedian from The New Yorker uh, who does the satire. And I think he wrote an article today that said uh, uh, that the uh, GOP senators are going to pass a law that three coup strikes and you're out. That's when they're going <laughs> right. to. That was pretty there good. You go. Uh, so awesome sauce. Uh, anything else we need to know about the book before we go out? It's a, it's a nice, quick, easy read, but I love how you get right into the simple details, the simple language, and someone can read it and go, I get this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just, you know, uh, when, when I pitched this series to, to, to Barrett Kohler, the publisher of this book, this is the fifth of the hidden history series. We did one on guns. We did one on, uh, in the second amendment. We did one on the, on the Supreme court, um, uh, we did one on the war on boating, the Monopoly book, and now Oligarchy. And the next one will be Healthcare, uh, which is mm. off to the editor right now. Um, and then uh, the one after that is going to be about privacy. But my pitch to them was uh, people don't have time to read big books anymore. And, uh, and, and writers used to have to try to you know, hit that 250 to 300 page, you know, what, what is a book, right? And I said, you know, I'd like to publish a small book, you know, a 25,000 word book instead of a 100,000 word book. I've, I've written a lot of 100,000 word books. <laughs> it's not easy. It takes a year or two. Um, but nobody's reading them anymore. You know, people don't have the time. So how about a book that a person can literally read, uh, you know, on a Saturday? They could start, you know, 10 o'clock Saturday morning and be done by dinner time, Or they could, you know, pick it up and read it every night before they go to bed and finish it in a week. Um, that is just boiled down. That's just the essence that hits all the points. That's got a good uh, in-depth index in the back or, a, you know, end notes so that if they want more information, they can find, uh, you know, everything I say is backed up and, and findable on the internet. And uh, they were like, cool, let's try it and see what happens. And so far it's, it's worked really well and it's been really successful. And, and I think that's the, the, the main thing that I'd want people to know is, you know, uh, so often you hear an author and you think, oh, it sounds like a great book, but I just don't have time to slog through 300 pages. 
Um, now, this, this, is a, this is a little pocketbook, and it's about 150 pages of text, and it's very readable. And I, and I love it's also I deliver the show too. I love how I, on the show uh, you just you you get right to the facts, man, and you don't embellish them, and and uh, and you connect all the dots too, like we you did today, where you can see the arc of history and how they connect. So I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us today. Thank you very much, Tom. It's my ple- ple- excuse me. It's my pleasure, Chris. And, uh, you know, I hope we can do it again when the next book comes out. I'd love to have you on anytime you want to come on, sir. Um, So check out the book, guys. It's called The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. Uh, As Tom mentioned, that was just a rehearsal. And uh, there will be more to come, I'm sure. Uh, Order of the book, it'll be coming out February 2nd. 2021 so uh you'll be able to grab a copy and all that good stuff thanks to my audience for tuning in be sure to go to youtube.com forward slash chris foss hit that bell notification so you get all the notifications and that uh, good fuzzy warm feeling go to goodreads.com forward slash chris foss you can see all the books we're reading and reviewing over there also you can go to facebook.com the chris foss show and there's a bunch of groups if you just search for them you can join them same thing with LinkedIn as well and Instagram. You'll see this on there. Instagram.com for slash Chris Voss. Thanks to Tom for being here. Thanks for for being here. We'll see you next time.